Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tonist, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Book Sellout was released in October 2021. It profiled punk, emo, and hardcore bands in the 90s and 2000s that sold out to a major label. Each profile explains the scene and circumstance of each of these bands how they got signed, the process of making their sellout record, and the impact it had on them. Though no ska bands are profiled, the genre does pop up a few times. And, as we learned, one ska band was considered. We talked to the book's author, Dan Ozzie, about sellout, but also about Chris Farron, Jeff Rosenstock, and obviously Glenn Danzig. You read Sellout yourself, right? Yeah, I read it with my own eyes. Yeah, I listened to the audiobook which is a whole different experience. Dan doesn't read it. They hired an actor to read it. Mm-hmm. So there's a few funny pronunciations in there. Oh, My favorite of which being fat wreck chords. <laughs> how far does it fight a punk, uh, a punk reader? You know how it says on flyers when you don't know where the, uh, where the show is, it says ask a punk. Yeah, man. Somebody should have done that with this, with Dan Ozzie's book for this actor. A really enjoyable book though. Highly recommend it and highly recommend listening to the audiobook because you can just do your laundry and wash dishes while you listen to sellout. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is um, Glenn Danzig, mm-hmm. specifically his house that you like to photograph. I do. I, I heard you had uh, Chris Farron on this and asked him about my love of Danzig. So here I am in person. Yeah, I, we need the real story. Yeah, Chris didn't know. Well, one thing Chris got wrong on that is when you asked him, like, what is there anything special about the house? And he said, no, there's nothing like Danzig about it. That is completely the opposite of the, of the truth. Um, it's so first of all, the, the neighborhood that it, it sits in is like very uh, upscale, I guess, or like hip you know, uh, and it's expensive. Um, like I can't afford to buy a house there. Um, so all of, you know, it's like very coveted real estate. So all the houses are like very well maintained there, you know, and very cute. Um, and then just in the middle of it, in this like very busy area is this house that Glenn Danzig, um, I think still owns, he doesn't live in it, but I've been, I've like looked it up on Zillow (laughs) and stuff. I think he still owns it, but it is, 
very Danziggy. It's very like it's again like it's in this like very nice neighborhood, and there's just this like dilapidated gray house that like is being <laughs> swallowed back to earth. And it's so funny because we had like an uncharacteristically rainy winter in LA that like really went for like months. Like we just got more rain than I've ever seen, and the weeds in his front yard have grown to and i'm not joking like waist high and like if you look at the house from the side like all of these um uh like what do you call like uh what do you call this what do you call veins that trees make branches Branches. (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say roots but sure roots yeah branches they're just like swallowing the house back to earth like it's like so poorly maintained there's like the blinds are just askew and everything it's like such a bleak like gothy house so for chris to say that it's not danzig danzig-esque at all is such a such a misrepresentation of the house (laughs) how many people have you taken photos of in front of the house well okay so it's uh, like it kind of became a thing where uh, if I was in the area, like it's it's just like a thing that I like to walk past. Like I want to give the Dan Ozzy tour of Los Angeles and basically for $50, I will take you to that house and then I will take you around the block to the coffee shop where the first sketch of I think you should leave was filmed with the door that opens both ways. That's pretty much like the, the things that uh, people are like, Oh, like, was this, is this a part of like old Hollywood? I'm like, I don't know, but they filmed that, that uh, scene from Swinger. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So it's like, I just started taking pictures of people that I knew in front of the house. And then uh, recently I was like, you know, I have a lot of these, like a lot, a lot, a lot of these. And, um, <laughs> I was like, maybe I should just do something with these. But then once I decided that it didn't feel like I had a lot, it felt like I needed more. So I like, I'm not joking, like made a list of everybody that I know out in Los Angeles. And I've just been asking like, hey, the next time you're over here, can I come take your picture here? So now I'm like actively trying to collect as many as I can. And so when I do something, when I have enough, I will do something with them. And if you guys are ever in Los Angeles, let me know and I'll take you over there. I just something about taking pictures of friends. It's just a funny, it's just a funny punk landmark, in my opinion. Do you take all the pictures from the same spot or are they kind of spread around? Uh, like I mix it up. Like I have like my, my certain shots that I like to take, but I like to in this project which will reveal itself i guess that i've been working on i (laughs) have been trying to just like show as much of the like house as i can like uh you know i don't want to take the same shot over and over and over again like i would like you to come away being like wow i really understand this the scale of the house now you know um so yeah i i have i'm not joking like i have like dozens of dozens of photos of like of photos and people photos of people in front of the house and it's just so funny who i have like wanting to do it too um like i i have such a huge list and like uh i this is a fucking total name drop right um but i'm i'm friends with uh shirley manson from garbage and Mm -hmm. her husband billy like loves the house too and they're like, we, when are you going to take our picture in front of there? I'm like, <laughs> fucking anytime. I will race over there to take your picture in front. Of-. So I'm like, just like just all these like funny people. 
Uh, and and some of some are my friends who have like no public persona whatsoever and just like wanted to be photographed in front of and then some are Shirley Manson. So it's just like I have such a huge collection. Uh, it's it's what I have like a really compulsive uh, personality. And so I just like start documenting things compulsively and then I can't stop <laughs> so that's that's one of my many like projects that like one day i will put into the world in some capacity have you been interested in taking photographs for a while um yes uh actually do you, i i've been doing it for like five years uh if you if you want to hear how i started taking pictures i would love to talk about i'm it. interested yeah because then some some of the stuff you post on instagram is really cool oh thanks like your um like your photos you took from your uh recent trip to Greece, for instance. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So basically it's like this, like when I, I was working at this website, noisy, this music website, and I was there for like five or so years and I was getting like a little burned out. Like I like writing about music, but when you are made to do it every day, day after day for five years, you get a little burned out. And so I was like kind of feeling creatively burned out. Uh, and at the same time, I remember one night I was like backing up all of my photos onto like Google photos. And in the time I had been doing that job, I saw some really cool shit and nothing like, you know, I didn't see like Nirvana's first show or anything like that, but I just saw like bands that did pretty well for themselves. I saw their first shows. I saw their last shows. I saw some really cool, just us hanging out stuff. And I was like looking at my photos and I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool if I had like better than like iPhone five blurry ass looking photos, you know? <laughs> uh, and so I just bought a camera. I bought this camera called the Rico GR two, which is just like a small pocket, like point and shoot camera. And I just like taught myself how to use it. Um, and I just brought it everywhere and I was taking pictures and then I went to Greece again at that time. I think that was 2018 or so, 2019. And I, brought it there and then i went to croatia and i took all these like awesome photos because uh dubrovnik is like very photogenic city it's like these orange roofs i like photographed that and i just like got super into it and i got home and i bought this other camera called the fuji x100f um and so yeah i just started like i always since then have had a camera on me and i've just been acquiring <laughs> more fucking cameras like not not like anything expensive, but I just I bought like a portrait camera because sometimes Chris Farron or somebody or like one of my friends is like, can you take a portrait of me? And so I bought like a Canon for that. And I have like film cameras and Polaroid cameras. And so I just got like a little bit <laughs> like, but I just like really, again, like it feeds into my compulsive like desire to be a documentarian. And I fucking wish that I had done it sooner. And whenever like young like writers ask me what advice I have, I'm like, buy a camera. And they think that I'm like joking, but I'm like, no, 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 buy a camera. It will like, it will, you will need it in the future. Um, so yeah, I just always, I just always like have something on. I keep that my fucking thing on me, you know? So when you were in Greece, um, you got in a car wreck while you were there? I got into a head on collision, like a head to head Whoa. collision. It was so fucking scary. Like, Basically, like, you know, it's in in Greece, it's a lot of like really narrow dirt, unfinished roads. 
And it's a lot like here in LA where, you know, like there's only space for one car. So one car pulls over, the other one goes, and then the other, you know, like you kind of like have a little system with the person that's coming forward. So we were like in a, on a dirt road, my friend Spiro was driving and we like pulled over and like two cars passed and then we started to go. And as soon as we started to go, like Spiro hit the brakes because there was this like sprinter van uh, coming so fucking fast at us and so Spiro just like slammed on the brakes and unfortunately or fortunately maybe this like one stretch where we stopped was there was like a a stone wall on the right side and like a little farmhouse on the left side so it was like kind of a narrow passageway so we were kind of like stopped at the base of that and this sprinter van saw us and he was coming so fast and he slammed on the brakes and he, it was kind of like he was on ice almost because like he started drifting like diagonally towards us like because he slammed the brakes so hard and he was going so fast and he hit the farmhouse and bounced off and like that probably saved our lives because it like slowed him down a little bit and wow. but he still like ended up hitting us head to head and weirdly enough like we were okay for a head-on collision like we all took that moment to be like okay is everybody okay because we had like two boys in the car like two eight-year-old boys in the car and we were like yeah we're all we're all okay and then we like got out of the car and one of the boys uh brixton he was eight and he just goes to the other driver. He just goes, come on, this is our rental. <laughs> and like, and, but like, yeah, we like fucking survived that. It was really nuts, <laughs> but not, you know, not the optimal vacation activity. Yeah. The idea of getting in a car wreck um, in another country just seems extra stressful. Not just on another country too. We were on like an island, which is a small island off of another island. So we had to get a pickup truck to come get us. But since he was coming from like far away, like he had to take like ferries to come. He didn't, he didn't get there till like after 10 PM. So we were just like in the hot sun, like while the, you know, like the sun was going down, uh just like sunscreening up and waiting for this car and then finally after like 10 he came and then we had to go get a replacement car and they gave us another replacement car until our replacement car got there so every time we got a new car we had to go to another island to pick it up so it was like an entire morning every time we had you know like just so fucking inconvenient thank god we had like my friend's girlfriend my friend's brother's girlfriend eleni was in the car and she speaks greek like she's greek and so thank god she was in the car because like uh she could communicate with the other people and like with the tow truck service and everything i was like oh man yeah because that would have been bad <laughs> yeah so I, I asked chris um is there any questions i should ask dan and he said here we go ask him about my wedding mm. he wants me to say he wants me to tell the story of his wedding because it 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 prompts me to say what is almost what is the worst word that you can say? Like almost the worst word that you can say. And it makes me so uncomfortable to say it. So I will say it one time and then we'll we'll move on. But Chris had a wedding in Florida, which was like so much fun. Uh, and uh, he, um, you know, Florida has just wonderful outdoor <laughs> like life, you know, like animal life. So there are a lot of 
frogs there. I remember there being like frogs at the wedding. It also like rained in the middle of it, which was actually really beautiful because like it was at the end and people were just like outside in their suits and dresses, like dancing to purple rain in the rain. It was actually a a really fun wedding. (laughs) But I came back to the hotel and I just took off my suit at the end of the night and realized, and this is where it sounds like I'm cursing. Please do not edit this weird, but it sounded if it, I was like, my legs were covered in chigger bites. Um, like the back of my leg, my, the back of my thighs were just these like red bumps. Like, and it looked really bad. Like it looked so bad. And I was like, what is this? Like, what the fuck is this? And somebody who was fl- from Florida was just like, oh yeah, that's chiggers. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know? And I just had like just these disgusting red bumps. And it's just so weird because like obviously I didn't take my pants off at the wedding. Like, how did they get all up in there? I don't know. Um, but it was so, so fucking gross. Um, but really fun wedding. My understanding of chiggers is uh they smell fresh meat like when when you're when you're not native to the area yeah they, yeah they, they could tell i was one of them city folk yeah and uh, and and it like the first time is always the worst apparently yeah they're like this guy's never been to fest let's bite him <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah but that was a very fun wedding but i had like these truly just this, this, this like disgusting rash looking thing all over my my thighs for like a few days after that dang you wrote this article about Jeff Rosenstock um, it, for Noisy uh, when Worry came out. Worry is the album where Jeff is really getting a lot of press and a lot of notice from people outside of the circle he had been, you know, in previously. But your your article I thought was really interesting because you went with him to Tijuana. Yeah. And you guys all like walked across the border, I believe, <laughs> yeah. a group of like 17 people. Yeah, I actually it's funny because I just recently got asked to write about Jeff for a a different publication. uh, And I was thinking of going and rereading that one. But I don't uh, I don't know. Sometimes I don't like reading old things, you know, Um, but that I've written. I mean, um, but I do remember that being a good time. And I do remember also, too, that being a time where I was like, yeah, I wish I had fucking camera on me like we did have a photographer there erica but like i was like yeah i wish i had my own camera but um yeah we we jeff in in the lead up to worry was like decided that he was gonna play a show in tijuana with chris and hard girls i think and also um jordan from roswell kid came he wasn't playing but he came and uh, yeah, basically, there's two ways to do a show in Tijuana is like you can drive across the border um, or you can just like basically drive all the way to this like motel in San Diego that's like right at the lip and just walk over. And so we did that. We just walked over and we carried like guitars and basses. And I think they had been told that like the venue would have some sort of backline and like amps and stuff. So we didn't have to go like super heavy on that. Um, But yeah, like 17 of us or something just like walked across the border. And this was like, you know, the time when Trump was running for president. And at that point, at that point, the most horrific thing he had said was like, we have to build the wall. You know, obviously that has been replaced by like probably 20,000 
more horrific things, but it was like a very build that wall. Like Mexico is bad. They're sending their worst people, you know? Um, so it was like a very weird time to just like walk across the border. Um, and then, yeah, we got to Tijuana and like, I don't know, man, Jeff is like a really special person that he can just show up places and just some fucking mod bar in Tijuana. And there were, I mean, like it was only a ton of kids, but it was full. Like, I don't know, 70, 75 ki- people. Uh, I don't know, a hundred people. Like it was a small bar. So it, fe- it felt full. Um, I, if, if 75, it might even been less than that, but yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. The article you also, I thought was interesting because you talked about sort of the, what was going on with Trump and, and because also Jeff, I feel like was commenting on that time period as well. And I'm not, a lot of people were yet really commenting on it. Yeah. And so it was a nice way to sort of tie it all together. Like we're going to Mexico. But I also remember it like I, maybe this is one of the reasons that I don't read it back is because my, you know, it feels a little bit, um, I don't know, like looking back at it, uh, I look at the person who wrote it and look at all of us at that time as like a very naive person, because I was writing that article being like, yeah, we're going to Mexico during this like really scary time where this guy's running for president, but it felt very safe. Cause you were like, yeah, but like Hillary's going to win the fucking election, you know? So like, it felt yeah. like, yeah, it's scary, but also it's scary that this guy's running, but you know, like it's just I, thinking like twenty. What when was that? Twenty sixteen. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Thinking like your twenty sixteen self. Oh no no no! That had to have been like twenty. Christ, I'm like Biden won in twenty twenty, right? Yeah. So yeah, Trump won the first time in twenty sixteen. So that was like, yeah, it was just like we were all really naive and thinking that could not never happen. Uh, I thought that it would because I wrote an article that surmised that he would just because I have such little confidence in America. Um, but at the same time, there was definitely like, oh, no, 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 no. We have like guardrails in place to make sure this won't happen. But obviously it didn't. So when I look back at that article, I think it was almost like a bit of like a cheeky fiction where I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be dangerous if this racist became president? You know? Yeah. I, I Around a couple months before the election, um, I wrote an article about a couple comedians here in Sacramento and we went to some bar that was in like kind of a rural town and it was, it was just because that's where they happened to be playing. I, it wasn't, that wasn't the nature of the article, mm-hmm. but th- it was so tense. Uh, the article, the people there were clearly like, there was a, a percentage of them that, that were Trump fans mm-hmm. and the comedians were just not, you know, they were being antagonistic about the Trump thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, on the way back home, we're like, God, this, I can't wait for this to be over. You know, so that was, Oh, I know. Right. You were just like, (laughs) Oh, just a few more months. And then we won't have to think about this ever again. Like I, I, I almost missed that naivety that we all had, you know? Um, but in a way, I don't want to say like the, the, the presidency of Trump was good, certainly, but I do think it like activated a lot of people politically or like woke up some people who were like really sleeping through Obama, you know, like, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to like, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to like talk politics really, but I do, I do think that like some people who had never been politically engaged before finally saw like the inequalities of this country and like what a thin 
line our entire government hangs on, you know? And like for, for people like us who like grew up on punk, we have like some awareness of that. But I think if you just were a person who just like listened to pop radio your whole life and like watched the office or whatever, like you don't think about <laughs> that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so like in a weird way, like 2016 was kind of cool in that it made everybody punk but obviously it was awful for many 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 reasons it just i don't know if there's one good thing to have come out of it everybody sounded like a fucking nwa record all of a sudden <laughs> like everybody <laughs> sounded like rage against the machine suddenly you know and that's i don't know a positive so chris farron played that show and yes i uh, love that this is a chris farron based podcast <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking i am very glad that it he played that show. Yes, he he said it was so bad. I don't remember it being bad, and I do have a few photos from it. Again, maybe this is why I love documenting things. That like I don't know. It just I do, I don't remember it being as bad as he was saying. It was a let me put it this way. It was like a mod bar in Tijuana, and I'm sure from their perspective, it was not the highest quality of like equipment and room that they've ever played in before, but I just, I just don't remember it being that bad. I remember like Casey from fake problems came and he played with Chris. Like, what did he play bass or something like that? But like he, he played with Chris. I don't remember too much else about his set. I thought it was a good set. I don't remember what his recollection was so bad, why it was so bad. (laughs) I have a picture of him going through TSA and like explaining his weird, you know, like why his guitar has like mirrors all over it and stuff like that. (laughs) Not TSA. Is that what it's called when he, yeah, right? Like the Border Patrol. Um, Yeah, I don't, I maybe, if Chris wants to ride this like, legend that that's his worst show like i'm here to back him up on it i just don't remember it as being particularly off do you remember his reasoning for why he has mirrors all over his guitar uh he chris is like you know like since chris sang my praises on on his episode i'm gonna sing chris's (laughs) praises on my episode yeah chris is just like a really uh good solo performer um he really he has a drummer now, but he's like for a while he was just playing by himself and he's really, really good at making a show feel like it's not just one person up there playing. Um, He has like a really good stage design. A lot of his like equipment is like very flashy and memorable. Like he has like, um, you know, like lights on his nightstand. He has like all these weird, uh, projections and like I feel like his guitar strap lights up and his guitar is you know reflect like he's just like I don't know he's very like showy and and he sounds awesome like he doesn't sound like it's like one person um and I really think he kind of like perfected that art of like being a one-man show that doesn't feel like you're just watching one fucking guy masturbate up there you know um yeah he's he's great he's he's a really fun visual uh artist (laughs) nice but in mexico it was like just him (laughs) maybe that's Uh why he felt that it was so rough it was like you know he was just very exposed out there all right so back to your noisy days you wrote an article None of you motherfuckers wrote about the 20th anniversary <laughs> of Catch-22's Keys Me Nights, so I guess I'll do it. Yeah. 
that that was me being like I don't have it in me right now. I think I just like at that time didn't have the time to sit there and do a full <laughs> anniversary piece about Keysby Nights. Um, but I I don't remember what came out at that time. Like at that time, it was just like a, a bunch. What, I don't remember like the you know what albums got the Pitchfork like revisited treatment at that time. But I was like looking and I was like, man, Keysby Nights is like 20 this year. Nobody's going to write about this. And and then I remember like who else? Yeah, it's going to be me if it's going to be anybody. But then I was just like, I just don't have the time. So that was my way of like skirting it uh, and just just kind of doing a cop out and being like, this album's awesome. I, I one maybe one day, maybe for the 25th, if that hasn't passed, I will uh, do a real deep dive into that album because I still love it. I think uh, this year is the 25th. Oh, I see. You called my bluff. And now I got to do it. By the way. <laughs> so uh, I don't remember the name of it, but there's uh, I wrote about it in my newsletter a few months ago. But this guy, uh, I grew up like in the tri, like the going to shows in the tri-state area and largely in New Jersey. And some guy has done this like yeoman's work of compiling all of these like New Jersey at the turn of the century demos and EPs and stuff like that. And it's just an, a huge Jersey database of like bands. Like I looked through it for hours, like unlocking so many memories. I'm like, Oh wait, that was an opening band. That was an opening band. I saw them. Oh, I actually, my friend's bro- boyfriend was in this band, you know, like that kind of thing. And uh, just taking that like nostalgia trip. But like a lot of the stuff I don't think is probably very interesting to somebody outside the state of New Jersey. However, the uh catch 22 demo is on there and it's a lot of the like uh early versions of what became keysby night songs and i am embarrassed to tell you how much play i got out of that like a really a really large amount yeah i um i, I read that um that post and uh i i listened to it as well and um because the 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 article was like, you know, I, I miss like shitty recordings. I think something like that. Yeah. 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 And it, it there is something about that recording that really capture. I'd never heard it before, but it really captures the shittiness of that specific era to the point where it gave me nostalgic feelings, even yeah. though I'd never heard it before. And that's, that's like the best version of like sounding shitty. Cause like the musicianship on that record is really good. Like on, on the full proper recorded version, it sounds great. Um, but on that demo, it's like really rough. Uh, but the songs are so well written and that's maybe like what I was saying that I missed about things sounding shitty. You know, it's just like, you really like, it made you work for it. <laughs> But then when something <laughs> sounded awesome, like when the you could just tell like shitty recording or not, like this, this person's got it. Like they can write a fucking song, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear a little bit about your, uh, your time in, in the scene when you were growing up. I know when, when we spoke at uh, the Silver Sprocket um, event, you talked about how there was. Are we going to talk about that, by the way? Let's talk about that. That was so, it was, fu- it was a very funny event. A lot of fun. Great meeting you. I don't have you told the story on this podcast of like that event? I don't, I don't think, think you have. So. No. May, yeah. may I? 
Please, let's hear your take <laughs> so, on it. So, <laughs> so I, I, the folks at Silver Sprocket in San Francisco invited me to do an event for the the like Litquake thing that happens there, and I was down to do it. Um, I had to drive up from L.A. And, you know, those, those people are so great. Uh, the one downside is that they really like, we did not announce that till like the day before. So it was like, not a lot of people there, but it was, it was still fun. And when we got there, uh, they were like, okay, so like, guys, this is going to be the format, like a couple of like our artists and poets are like going to talk, speak for a little bit. And then like at eight o'clock, uh, we have this guy, who uh i like i think they said he had like a punk radio show or something i'm not trying to slag Mm -hmm. him off i'm not gonna name him but they said he had like a punk radio show and they were like okay so like aaron is gonna read a section from his book and then this guy is gonna interview aaron then at nine o'clock dan is gonna read from his book and this guy's gonna interview dan and we were like cool that sounds good and so you did a reading from your book that went over well And then you sat down and this guy was interviewing you and it was like just going rough. Like you were doing a great job, but but like he, he was not on top of his game and I am like watching. I remember at one point he said something like, he was like, okay, so like what's right now do like, let's have, what do you think is the, is the, and like, it was just a question that just like trailed off. And I remember Aaron, you said something like, uh, yeah, what do you want me to do? Like, what, what, do you, what do you want? And uh, and so I'm watching this and just being like, oh, God, I'm like watching my future death up there. So I like my turn, nine o'clock, like I went up, I read like a couple pages from my book. And then I was just like, oh, and before I like, I just want to tell a quick story about those pages. And I told this quick story. And then I was kind of like, oh, actually, also, too, that reminded me of this other tangent. And I was like, kind of talking for what I thought was too long. I was like, oh, they probably want to get to the interview. And I like, look at the guy who put on the show. And he was making the like, stretch it out motion. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I just kept talking. And by some miracle, I managed to do an hour of like, unscripted talking and it just worked but then like afterwards they told me they were just like oh yeah that guy just like left (laughs) (laughs) and i was like oh okay so like there was nobody to interview me if i hadn't just babbled on but uh but adam from jawbreaker was there and (laughs) and it was a fun event yeah so adam from jawbreaker was there and you had no idea he was there and you had um because he had a mask on yeah and and you at one point during the conversation you just talked about how much jawbreaker meant to you i know it was so cheesy i was like man <laughs> and i was like talking i was like yeah and then i got to meet jawbreaker and who like jawbreakers just you know i grew up with them oh my god jawbreaker is the greatest band if those jawbreaker guys were here right now i would suck <laughs> them off and you know and like meanwhile <laughs> this guy's like right here and i'm like oh that's embarrassing after the fact i realized it but uh you know he's he's really cool and and so during the during your conversation too, you were uh, I thought one of the funniest parts is you were like it's like normally there's someone up here asking me questions, but now I'm just thinking of questions in my head and then I'm answering them. <laughs> yes, that's pretty much my, how I moved through my day, anyway, <laughs> just answering fake interview questions. <laughs> but okay, so I'm sorry, I totally derailed us. So we did that event. Where were you going with this? I'm sorry, I forgot. Oh wait, uh, we'll come back to where I was going. There was um. 
there was another thing that you you talked about at that event. I want you to relay the story here. You you talked quite a bit about Gilman because you're in the Bay Area. Yeah. And um you said that you know, you did you grew up not going to Gilman because you were on the other side of the coast. So when you were writing sellout, you felt like you had to really 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 research Gilman intensely because you didn't want to mess up Gilman. Yeah, I don't want to be the guy who gets it wrong and then 80 million Bay Area po- punks like yell at me, you know. So there you you had heard some story about a dead body found at Gilman. Oh yeah. You know, I, I gotta like reread this section a bit more before I just start telling it over and over again because <laughs> I'm pro- I'm probably butchering it. <laughs> but I'm like looking for it right now and I don't shit where is that book it's it's a book called give me something better Mm -hmm. uh it's like a really exhaustive oral history of the bay area and i really should reread this part but i'm like relaying what i remember from from memory which is that you know like gilman opens and it's like a free speech space and the thing that happens with any free speech space happened to Gilman, which is somebody took it too far, right? Like it started out, which is in like a very positive, cool way where it was just like, you know, the Yeezy girls like talk doing like feminist rap. And it's like, okay, that's cool. And then like, eventually some people like started taking their newfound freedom of speech too far. And they were like, incorp- I think this one person like brought like a dead dog and like wrapped it around their shoulders during their set or something like that. And it was like really gross. And it was like pushing the limits of like good taste, like as maybe free speech, but then like somebody took it like even further and like dug up a corpse of some sort (laughs) and like brought it. Like I want to say it was like a child's corpse and like brought it to brought it to Gilman And I think once they did that, like the light came on at the party and they realized like, oh, fuck, like this is too far. (laughs) And they like tried to like stash it at Gilman, like by the soundboard. And I think if if our memory is correct, like it was Tim Armstrong who like like basically called the cops and was like, listen, we have this situation where we're we're willing to work with you to help you. The only thing we ask is that like when this gets written up in the newspaper that you do not mention Gilman Street because we don't want this is just some fucking weirdo who did this like we it's not us. We don't want to be associated with this. We're just like helping you get to the bottom of it or whatever. Uh, I do have to reread that section because I may be missing messing the details up, but it is something along the lines of that. And it's really fucking fascinating. And like I in researching it so Gilman so much, like I really thought I knew everything. I was reading like the same like descriptions of it a million times, but then that like part of that book like stood out to me. It's so fucking, it's a really good, it's a really good oral history, history, like really well-researched. Yeah. I'll have to go back and read, reread that book too. Cause I don't remember that part. I remember the part with the dead dog. But I remember yeah, the part with the dead I think body. that, yeah, hold it. I'm just, I don't, I can't go get the book because then I'll disconnect my sure. microphone. But I remember, hold on. I'm just going to look up. I'm just going to Google Gilman Street. <laughs> uh, dug up corpse. I don't know. Yes. Yes. It was in the San Francisco Weekly a few years ago. Uh, 
Uh, listen, listen, listen. Jeremy Adkins doesn't look like a one-time grave robber as he rides up to the courtyard near the Fruitvale BART station on his bicycle. He doesn't lug around a pickaxe or have soil under his fingernails, but he's the one who stashed the dead baby at the hallowed punk collective at 924 Gilman Street in Berkeley, a darker moment left out of Corbett Redford's new Green Day produced documentary, Turn It Around. It was something that was dumb, but why not? Adkins says, <laughs> like you get a bad idea, and instead of a better one coming along, you keep that bad idea all day long, and you end up doing it. Yeah, you know how that goes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yes, the guy's name is Jeremy Adkins, and he dug up a baby's corpse and brought it to Gilman. Uh, the cops were finally called the next morning, but after Adkins had sashed the baby at nine twenty four Gilman. Quote, the one place stupid enough to trust him with keys. The police rounded up everyone at the house in Oakland thinking that there were fresh corpse there instead of bones that had been. Oh, OK. So there was like bones that had been there for 130 years, if that means anything. Um, police showed up at Gilman Street while Rancid was practicing to look for the child's body. They didn't find her. But Tim Armstrong of Rancid later found her in a Tower Records bag in the sound booth. Fuck, that's so dark. Oh, damn. That's so <laughs> I would have loved to have heard that part on the like turn it around documentary where Tim's just like, yo, so I looked in this tower records bag, right? And there was a, yo, there was a baby in there, right? <laughs> and I was like, this is a song about a dead baby in a bag. It's called, it's called, <laughs> I don't know. Time bomb. Yeah, uh, it's called time bomb. So yeah, that that's, that's a real story. I did not fucking just make that up. Damn. That reminds me, like, uh, I don't know if this story is true, but um, back back in the 90s, my friend told me that uh, this band, Force Good and 500, were on their way to a gig, and then they saw, like, a bunch of, uh, you know, dead carcasses, animal car- carcasses on the road, and they're like, hey, we should, uh, we should grab these up. This would be some great props for our show. And they, uh, sure enough, they put, all the, they put all these dead carcasses on themselves. They played a show. And then uh, they got gangrene. Mm, well, that was the story. <laughs> you know what? No, no risk, no reward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but there definitely was at that time. I think like a handful of musicians that were thinking they were thinking two steps ahead. Like, how are we going to shock people? Yeah, total. That was the word I was just going to use is like shock. Like it went from like, you know, like it was like probably I don't know if this was the same time, but like the G.G. Allen time where it was like punk Mm -hmm. mean shocking people. I don't know. Uh, Also, too, I think it was just one person who just went too fucking far. You know, (laughs) like we don't have to like cast a a broader social social trend on it. It was just one guy who just had a really (laughs) stupid fucking idea. (laughs) Or maybe like putting it in a Tower Records bag was like a commentary, man, on like the corporatization yeah, of music, I do, you know, I think man. So, yeah. <laughs> so at the, at that show, uh, the Silver Sprocket event, we were talking a little bit before the show, and you were talking about the scene you grow up in, and how there was a lot of mixed bills, and how um, ska was present on those bills a lot yeah i don't know like if I, I don't know if that was unique to like the new jersey area or not or just like the late 90s but i remember like going to shows because i wanted to see one band or going to a show because i had nothing else to do and that's where everybody was 
And, you know, there was like seven bands on the fucking bill. It like started at like 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you'd have like, I don't know. Like, I think at that, I think now we're really into like micro genre t- labels. Um, but at that time, like, yeah, stuff was like ska or emo core or whatever. But like everything fell under this like umbrella of like, non-corporate rock right yeah. I, I feel like you remember that that time where it was just like rock music and you didn't think too much about it and there was like you know there would be like a, a scott opener like i'm trying to think of the ones from that website that i was talking about but like there was this one called professor plum they used to open every fucking show that was then they were like had a very scott like you know horn section and everything uh but then also there would be right after that there'd be like a like a sunny day real estate type of band you know and then also too there would be like a moshy hardcore band and at that time like it just all seemed like this to me like this is what shows are and now i feel like it's very i don't know now i feel like it's very much like okay you could be a band in like minnesota and have a certain sound and you could get connected with a band in San Diego who sounds a lot like you. And and you say like, oh, let's get one more band that sounds like us and go on tour together. And you get like three bands that all make sense together. But like pre-internet, it was just like, yeah, I let me just ask the guys that I know from college or high school or whatever. And they 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 play in a ska band. So like I and we're a hardcore band, but like they're the band that we know. You know what I mean? Like it was more like just locally based and you kind of just like take your take your pickings where you can get them yeah at that yeah. that's what it felt like to me yeah man when i when my band went on tour my ska band went on tour in the mid 90s it was like i think we played with like three or four ska bands total and like over mm-hmm. the course of like three tours it was just like whatever punk alternative rock um hardcore you know whatever bands were around that's who we played with and it like yeah. it it just made sense because it was like the punk scene, the DIY scene. And within that was a whole bunch of different genres. Yeah, I kinda I kinda miss that. Like I don't know, like because I would I would watch those. Like that's probably the reason that I have a like more diverse palette for that kind of stuff, is cause like I was just open. Like I, I, when I, you know, like I feel like now I'm such a snark. Like I go to a show, I like want to see the band I want to see. And then that's kind of like it, you know, I'm like, it's like the lazy man's way of doing it. But when I was like a, a teenager, I wanted to see every band and I wanted to stand right in front of the speaker. You know, I wanted to like be up there and like just just that was like a mark of like cool to me. So like at that time, I was just like watching every band because like now I like going to shows, but also I have a lot going on in my life at that time when I was like 16, 17, like shows were the biggest thing that you (laughs) could be doing. Right. Like it was like, you know, um, so I just like wanted to be completely immersed in it at that time. And so, yeah, I just feel like as a result of that, I was just way more open to like different, different sounds. What were the main venues that you went to at that time period? Um, So I've talked about, I've talked probably more about this than anybody else in the world, but there was a venue. So I grew up in Staten Island, New York, and there was this uh, venue 
uh, there when I first started going to shows called The Joint. And The Joint was just this like hole in the wall, kind of like VFW hall looking place in a kind of a sketchy part of town. And it was like um, shows every Friday night and they were like five, six bucks. And it was like five bands and five, six bands, whatever. And it was, uh, you know, it was like a bunch of like local bands from like Staten Island, Brooklyn, Philly, Jersey. And then there were usually like a couple of bands from like upstate, like in New Paltz specifically. There were a couple of bands from New Paltz and um, maybe like a touring band too, which if you look back, there were like a couple of, a couple of biggish ones. I think like a veil played there. I think like Snapcase or botch or whatever played there. Um, but that's, that was the big venue for me um, growing up because it was like on Staten Island. Then once I, me and my friends got cars and we started going to New Jersey, there were VFW halls. There was like the M&M hall. There was this place called Birch Hill, which was like a larger venue, a little bit larger. There was a place called um, Club Benet, which changed its name to Club Chrome. Um, and then when I was in college, that was like when that new Brunswick scene was happening. Mm-hmm. So there were shows in basements a lot. There were shows at, um, Jeff Rickley from Thursday's basement at 221 Somerset. Um, there was like also two, if the shows were too big, there was like the melody bar and another place that I'm forgetting at the moment. Um, but yeah. And then also too, you know, I was like close enough that I could drive to the first Unitarian church in Philly, if I wanted to go to a show there. And then I was also close enough to Manhattan too, where I was like going to ABC no Rio a lot. And, um, at that time brownies and I I like went to some shows at CBGB's, but like by the time I started going to shows like CBGB's felt very over already, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and, um, uh, and Coney Island High, which was like one of the first like really cool places that I went to when I was young. Before you wrote Sellout, you wrote an article for Vice about um, the Sellout albums in like 2015. Mm. A lot of the same uh, bands uh, that you would put in the book were in there, but there's a lot of others too. Um, Less Than Jake is the was the ska band that was on that list. Yeah. Did you consider Less Than Jake as an as a band for your book? Yeah, there were a bunch of bands that I had to like make Sophie's choices about and really like what it came down to, like what those choices came down to for me was, you know, like in case anybody hasn't read it, each each chapter of that book is about one band's major label record, you know, major label debut record. And uh, so each one is is about one specific album, really. Uh, and the chapters go chronologically to tell you this like 12 13 year history and i really like in my ideal world i wanted to have one album per year and for a while the book does that like green day dookie 94 jawbreaker dear you 95 jimmy world 96 blink 22 97 it likes it almost did it but then you know like i did i got to some places where there's two albums three albums that i really wanted to cover but i thought it was like too close together so i did have to make like a couple of sophie's choices but like less than jake absolutely and um i was really glad that i got less than jake in there 
by way of Jimmy Eat World because the same guy who signed Jimmy Eat World, Craig Aronson, also signed Less Than Jake and like around the same time. And I believe if you go on Discogs, there's like a um like a cassette sampler that Capitol Records made, which had two Less Than Jake songs on one side and two Jimmy Eat World sides uh, songs on the other side. Uh, and it was just like a little promo sampler. Mm. Um, so those two bands are like weirdly very connected in their in their like start in the major label world. Yeah, the other the other connection they have is that um, Fueled by Ramen released a Jimmy Eat World EP. Right. I feel like that's how I could be wrong, but I feel like that's how like I feel like less than Jake prompted them to do that. Yeah, I don't know. But I just know that they're like forever connected because they were like two signings of of Capitol Records in that same year. Yeah, I um, God, I remember talking to Vinny about this and I can't remember completely, but I feel like that EP was in between records when there was that weird gap with Jimmy Eight World where they were like kind of waiting and waiting. And then I think they got permission uh, to put that EP out on Fueled by Ramen. Yes. Like the the story goes that like, you know, they finished Clarity, which is in hindsight, like I, I think everybody would agree, just like sort of a masterpiece album of theirs. But it was just sitting there like they had the artwork done. They had the album recorded and it just sat there and they couldn't do anything with it until Capitol gave them like a release date and they were not getting one. And it was kind of becoming like a little bit evident that they were not like it might just get shelved. And yeah, they somehow talked them into like letting Fueled by Ramen put out like an EP and they did. And that got a little play. And also too, like Lucky Denver Mint from that album was in the Drew Barrymore movie, Never Been Kissed. And so it got a little bit of play like on the radio. And so suddenly Capitol Records was like, oh yeah, okay, we'll we'll put this out. And then by the time they got around to doing it, like it fell out of rotation, you know, like it just, Capitol really botched clarity which is so funny because it could have been huge for them maybe i don't know um but yeah they they really they really botched that yeah i think the other connection too or the other parallels with those bands too is that both of those bands got bigger with later records than their initial major label signing and they and they switched and they switched labels both of them yeah like lesson jake um their biggest record was uh 2003's anthem was that on fat or like what was that? No, that was so they they did um they did two for capital and then they were on fat and then they went on I think Warner Brothers mm. and they released Anthem and then uh, the science of selling yourself short I think was like the single that's like their I don't know it's not like a big big single but it's definitely the biggest less than Jake single. Chris uh, from less than Jake, um, I think I interviewed him for the like just sort of like the extra material that went into the paperback for so and i i like talking to him because he was like one of those guys like one of the few guys like i can kind of name them on one hand um who really like came from the punk world and when it came to like selling out or doing a major label record they were like no like why wouldn't we why wouldn't we want to do that like I want our music to be so big and like even the rest of his band was like no 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 like let's just be on fat records or let's be on what you know like they had just like low low goals but chris was the one who was like no like i want to be david lee roth i don't understand like why would we not you know what so i just like i just find it interesting when people like 
don't have the hangups about that. And I know he's friends with um, Mark Hoppus and uh, Hoppus is another guy who's in sellout. And he really is like, Mark came from nothing. Like Mark was like literally dirt poor. Like he lived in the fucking desert in just like dirt fields, you know? And like when it came to getting like a major label record, he was like, yes, I want that. I don't want to be poor anymore. <laughs> like, I don't I don't want to, like, live in poverty anymore. So, like, I don't know. Green Day, too, like, came from a really shitty town. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and they, you know, did it, too. So, I don't know. Something that gets lost on the sellout divide, which I don't know if I went into in the book, is that there's a real socioeconomic privilege that you have to tell people not, you know, not, not to make money off of their art. Yeah, definitely uh, Tim and Matt they were determined to make a living with music even mm-hmm. before rancid there's definitely cuz they they i don't think they came from anything either so there's definitely certain people that like you say they, they didn't come from money so it, it means something different like the idea of selling out is doesn't really compute yeah so like when less than jake um they, when they put out their first major label record uh, i'm 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 curious how this would have been as a as a chapter cuz i don't remember it being I don't remember it being a big deal too much. I don't remember it being particularly all that interesting, but I, I do think there was one thing about their story that I think you, you've talked about before, and that's that Less Than Jake didn't have any hits or anything, but they seemed to be one of the bigger ska bands on the scene because they had the major label resources, even though they didn't have the hits. So it, yeah. it definitely propelled them to this level, like kind of equal to like Real Big Fish and Goldfinger and these other bands that actually did have singles at the time. Yeah, I mean, like e- even bands that like quote unquote um, were fa- quote unquote failed by the major label system. Yeah, right. Like if nothing else, uh, they like Jimmy World, Less Than Jake, what they got out of it, like they had, yeah, they were on a label who like did not know what to do with them, like didn't know how to market them didn't know how to get them on the radio, didn't really understand the scene that they were coming from. But if nothing else, like the one thing that is that they got, which was like, you know, talking about how things sounded like shit back then, um, they got (laughs) records that sounded really good. Yeah. Uh, They got like, you know, high five or low six figure recording budgets. Um, And so they got to make records that like, sounded worlds better than the shitty demo tapes that were at the table merch table next to them um so yeah like i think i think that like even if even if your label like didn't know what to do with you i think the bands that did the best were the ones that were like oh no 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 we just need the record and we'll we'll go work we'll go tour and like i think less than jake was one of those bands they were like yeah no no thank you for like recording this album properly now we're gonna go tour and be like the most popular band on any tour that we do you know like they it's just it was a really it just like was like kind of like having a free like i don't know like they got like a good record out of it and that's kind of if nothing else like i don't know a step up from their peers yeah because i remember when lesson jake they did they put out pezcor it was on dill records and then you know, Mike left Skink and Pickle and it was on Asian Man. That record at that level was blowing up. I mean, it basically made Mike Park's like record label <laughs> a, a very profitable, you know, thing. You, I'm talking Pezcor still? Yeah, Pezcor. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as an indie record, that was doing incredibly well. And then um, they did the they did the two Capitol records, and I remember like like I remember in '98 they headlined a Ska Against Racism, and they were just like kind of not their own, not their fault, but they were kind of outshining the the tour and sort of the message of the tour because they were mm-hmm. so like kids were coming specifically because they were freaking out about less than Jake. So they were like becoming stars in this weird way where they weren't like, yeah, again, they weren't on the radio, but they were like really growing. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they played the long game, you know, like they weren't <laughs> looking to have like a breakout record. Yeah. They were looking to like to be in it for the long haul. I can't remember. Um, so in the blink One Eighty Two chapter, I can't remember if you, did you get into um, their uh, booker, Rick Bondi Tahoe agency? Oh yeah. I didn't, really i don't think i talked to him i think he's mentioned in it um because at that at that time they they hired two guys named rick rick devoe as their manager and rick bondy as their like booking agent yeah because that's an interesting connection to ska's because rick bondy was basically booking all the ska bands yeah and blink 182 <laughs> see this is like what i mean about like everything just being like more connected in the indie rock world yeah where, like i just think it's so funny that like now Jim Adkins, Mark Hoppus, and Krista Makes are friends. You know, like, and, <laughs> and like those three bands, like, don't sound like they're obviously like different sounding, but they're kind of all this, like, I don't know. It's just, it's just funny because it's just people making music and it's, it's us who like micro genres everything to death, you know? Were you aware of the fact that, um, the Tahoe agency was uh, referred to as the Skaho agency. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't know the. Uh, I didn't know the history of of Tahoe. <laughs> That's the, funny. The Blue Meanies, uh, the singer for Blue Meanies, he named it the Skaho agency. Ah, uh, and it caught funny. on. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. One more thing about uh, Blue Meanies and uh, Blink One Eighty Two. Since you're the, you got the inside inside with uh, Blink One Eighty Two. I've heard stories that. Uh, well, okay, we had Blue Meanies on the podcast, and they were in Australia at the same time as Blink-182. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that they had told someone, like, hey, uh, let them know that we're playing at this show. And I think their response was something like, are, Blink- are, uh, are Blue Meanies still scaring kids? So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My Blue Meanies uh, knowledge is fairly limited. your book uh sellout begins um it really kind of starts with green day being this sort of ground zero with um punk rock you know punk rock's relationship with the the mainstream but we're also kind of talking a little bit about nirvana's nevermind um Mm -hmm. which was like three years earlier our band could be your life the the thesis of our band could be your life was that Nirvana, uh, Nirvana's Nevermind was like the moment that punk rock kind of broke into the mainstream, essentially, and that this is the story of the bands that built the infrastructure that allowed them to, you know, break into this mainstream world. Whereas your book is kind of like the, this is sort of the aftermath of punk rock breaking into the mainstream. So, and, and I feel like I feel like you 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 begin with, as Green Day is this really important moment, but. Do you have any any thoughts about sort of that three year period between uh, Nevermind and Dookie? Um, yeah, I'm actually like trying to. I have our band 
could be your life in my hands right now. And I'm like trying to remember um, uh, this. I love the book truly, but there's one line in it that was so like weirdly dismissive. And I kind of like took it as a challenge to write sellout. Like I'm trying to find it right now, but it said something like, uh, like, yeah, as we all know, like, once a band went to a major label, they made their worst work. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, I was just like, wait, who says? Like, I want to do this. So uh, I can't find it right now. But to answer your question, um, that period between Nirvana and Green Day. Um, yes. I rem- What I remember, I mean, I was just a kid. Um, a kid who, like, fell deeply in love with what was going on. But I remember that period as being like a time where just a lot of stuff started all of a sudden coming into my periphery as a kid who probably just had like MTV or something. Because I remember, um, like, I, I feel like, I don't know, we get so inundated with like memories of grunge because there was a lot of like grimy, grungy, like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots. But I also remember that being the time that, like, I really fell in love with the Beastie Boys. And I also really like Beck and, like, things that weren't in, like, I don't think the grunge realm, but that were getting, like, more play at the time. Yeah, like alternative rock. It was a lot of alternative rock. Yeah, alternative rock. And, like, I don't know. I, I just don't, like... Like, yes, we we definitely got like a deluge and diminishing returns of like grunge. But just for me, it, it was a time where like I started to hear more about things that were previously in the underground. Like the Beastie Boys had been around since like the 80s. Um, the Beastie Boys at that point had probably been around for like a decade. But all of a sudden, like ill communication came out and I was like, oh, my God, you know, and like um, so I don't know, like I was just like more and then like. And then we had like Woodstock at kind of like capsulating it all like red hot chili peppers and all that. So I don't know that that part of my life is like a little bit like it all blurs together. Um, but really like birth my interest in like so many different things and talking about like what, we, like what we were talking about before everybody just being on the same bill. Like to me, I was like getting into Fugazi and that weirdly to me was the same as like rage against the machine. And I know that like kind of, they are two politically minded rock bands, but like there's worlds of difference between Fugazi and rage against the machine. But at the time they were just like all, it was just one side of a cassette or, and then the other side of a cassette to me. Um, so I don't know. I guess like when I, to me, when I was in high school, when Nevermind came out and like, I, I was just like, you know, whatever, what is this like, you know, major label bullshit or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and it's grunge or whatever. And, but I, like it, years later when I read our band could be your life, like I had never really thought of Nirvana as a punk band or as the product of punk. And I was like, huh? Cause that's the case they were making. They were making the case that it was the product of punk or that it was mm-hmm. punk. And I was like, huh? That's, I guess, yeah, I guess that is essentially what it is. Like, I just never even occurred to me that that's the way to look at it. And then, but with Green Day breaking, like Green Day were very clearly and obviously a punk band. Mm -hmm. When they broke, it was a punk band breaking. Even though 
you could argue that Nirvana was a punk band breaking into the mainstream. Yeah, I, well, I mean, like, like disregarding the sonics of Nirvana as just being like, I don't know, a hard rock band. Maybe you could say some like punk influence. I think the thesis of Nirvana in our band could be your life. Or at least like one thing that I realize now is that um, our band, our band could be your life documents this 10 year span in the eighties where all of these punk DIY institutions were cropping up because major labels did not care about this kind of music. So independent record labels were cropping up. Fanzines were coming up. Uh, DIY venues and like, you know, MRRs, book your own fucking life, like bookers, like indie bookers, like a whole independent network cropped up, which you would probably like put under the umbrella of punk and hardcore and DIY. And that's what, to me, Nirvana rode and had this weird freak crossover into the mainstream. But so like if all these punk institutions had not started in the Our Band Could Be Your Life era, Nirvana probably would not have the platform to stand on to get onto a major label. Um, I'm kind of like the wheels are wobbling on my brain right now, so I hope <laughs> that made sense. But like that that was kind of like what I... Ah, did, that, did you guys hear that? No, what was that? No, what was that? Sorry, I fucking... Uh, perfect thing to talk about on a Jeff Rosenstock record. Uh, <laughs> ska podcast. But I just hit play by accident on my computer, and Jeff's not to brag, new record, just blasting (laughs) in my fucking ears. And he has this one part, which, spoiler alert, there's like this insane blast beat part on it (laughs) that just backs right up into this like ska part. Uh, And that scared the shit out of me. Anyways, (laughs) what's what's the next question? What can we talk about? (laughs) Jeff's new record is really good, everybody listening. It's really fucking awesome. Go get Jeff's new record. (laughs) Hell mode, baby. I came on this podcast to do two things, do promo for my buddies, Chris Farron and Jeff Rosenstock and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of bubble gum. <laughs> who, who have you interviewed more times, <laughs> Jeff or Chris? <laughs> Both of them. And like one time I was like hanging out with Jeff and I was like asking him a question. And I was like, let me ask you something like, uh, what, how would you rank these records if you had to, I don't know, something like that. Uh, and I was like, I'm sorry, this sounds like like a podcast question. And he's like, Dan, you you know that like two friends hanging out is just hanging out, right? Like it's not like an interview. And I was like, yeah, I, I do. I know what you're saying. Yes. Like I just like he just kind of put me in my place about like, Dan, it's just do a phone call that's not recorded is not a podcast. It's just a phone call, <laughs> you know, like um, so, uh, yes, I've I've interviewed both of the many many times ska becoming a mainstream genre is interesting because definitely green day um offspring rancid all of the the sort of the punk becoming mainstream is the absolutely the reason why ska landed on the radio too because Mm -hmm. it was all the like punk ska it was the very the very punk version of ska that landed on the radio and i think it definitely primed um radio it primed labels it primed all of that but it was also th- this thing too i mean i'm sure you know but like it, like there was a period in the late 90s where no 
movie geared towards like young people was complete without like a mighty mighty Boston song on the soundtrack yeah. or something <laughs> like that. You know, like I don't I don't know how like ska became like the token soundtrack genre that like we just needed like 30 seconds over skateboarding or something and like clueless. <laughs> and that's what you know we need. Um but yeah, like I ska just became like a fucking cultural touchstone for music at that time. Maybe like is it no doubt too? I don't know. You're this you're the ska documentarian was like no doubt how much were they responsible for this well what's interesting like is that um like there was definitely major label signings for ska bands before this green day or even nirvana moment like fishbone were on a major mm. in the 80s the la band the untouchables i think they had a what would be considered a major label deal um mighty mighty boston's got signed in like 93 which is pretty early wow. yeah but yeah but they didn't really they didn't really have a hit until 97 and then no doubt, I think their first record, it was on Interscope in like 91. That album didn't really do well. And then the, like the weird, the weird, like, uh, also to like the, the like token ska soundtrack morphing into like a token brief moment of like, uh, like, um, like swing and swing revival, <laughs> you know, like yeah, the cherry <laughs> pop and daddies and all this shit. Cherry like, pop and daddies were technically the only swing band that was also like, played ska and had like were part of the ska scene. Mm. Yeah. I don't know too much about the swing scene. I did read my friend's book, um, hell of a hat, which touched on both. Oh yeah. 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 And it was interesting to see sort of like where these, they did come from these very, very, very localized scenes, these bands, like, like these very, very localized, like nightclub specific scenes that they built these sort of audiences. But that thing got mm -hmm. like way bigger than ska or punk. You know what I would I when I started like re, when I was researching sellout like one thing that I did was I like put together this like page in my notebook and maybe I just started an Excel spreadsheet at some point but like I just kind of put a lot of albums that I talked about uh basically every album that I talked about in the book like in a spreadsheet and just got the release date for it or like the approximate release date cuz some of them you know are a little like iffy about when exactly they came out um but like it's such a mind fuck to see some of those at some point when you're just like oh wait rocket from the crypt was like way before green day you know like it's just like i don't know like just just i get weirded out when i realize that the things that all have blended together in my mind is being like the late mm -hmm. 90s i'm like oh no no actually there were like three years of separation between this thing and this thing and it kind of like blows my fucking mind you know yeah, so I think what what I was what I was getting at though is that like I think there was like years and years and years of like ska bands and labels like trying to figure out what to do and how to like market this music, but it wasn't really until punk broke that mm. it kind of opened that door for ska to sort of have an actual real mainstream moment. Yeah, I'd say that's right. And like the the punk that was picking up on mtv and stuff like it wasn't like discharge you know it yeah. was stuff that's like scott jason it just a lot of times like didn't have the horns in it like i even think like the rancid singles that got popular um on like mtv like those were kind of like in line with scott and like tim obviously like coming from op ivy had like up tempo sensibilities and stuff like that so i think like even and, and like even green day too i mean like they were like a pop 
pop punk band. It wasn't like they were like very hard. Um, so I think like that stuff, yeah, you're right. Like the pop punk of it kind of primed people for, for like the, the ska sounds. It's a short jump, you it's know, between short, yeah. no I mean, effects and yeah. Cause look at like, um, real big fish or Goldfinger, Listen Jake, it's pop punk ska. So it's, yeah. it's very much in line. Yeah. Aaron, can I tell you how many fucking people <laughs> still to this day <laughs> will hear the, hear the title of my book? And be like, wow, did you write a fucking biography about real big fish? And I'm like, oh my God. Um, by the way, have you ever had that guy on the show? I have not had him on the show, but I interviewed him for my book. Interesting. I, I, uh, when he, when I was like trying to compile like extra material for the sellout paperback, I like <clears throat> pitched it to his publicist and thought it was like a no brainer. I'm like, hey, I wrote this book that shares a title with like his breakout song that he wrote about like what this book is about. Can I interview him about it? And they turned me down. They were like, oh, yeah, he's not really doing interviews right now. And I was like, hmm, OK, I mean, that that's fine. <laughs> but I was just like, seems incomplete <laughs> without it. Real big fish have like um, quietly broken up since the pandemic. Is that it? I think, yeah, it didn't sound like the way he put it is like, oh, he's not really in this t the doing interviews phase. Right? You know, I don't know how he put it, but it was just like didn't sound like it was something that was at the forefront of his of his mind. Yeah, Real Big Fish basically were touring like 200 plus days a year since like 96. And then obviously pandemic happened and then they just never came back. and. It sounds like, from the rumors I've heard, it sounds like they're not coming back. Like he's done. Yeah. yeah. Rumors. Rumors. I love it. I, lo <laughs> I love. I love doing rumors on a podcast. Let's what do else the do we got? That's good. That's good. Juicy goss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. The last time I saw a real big fish, um, they had like bowling shirts for sale, and I was like. Should I get a bowling shirt? Is this is this should be who I am? Like I'm looking for a new personality, and nothing says that like a bowling shirt. You can always be bowling shirt. <laughs> yeah, I can, for fifty dollars, I can change my whole personality right now. So, um, the Silver Sprocket Show, um, you posted a flyer for the event, and uh, one thing I love is that people who follow you they made multiple comments like. I think this means you need to make amends with ska, and then really and then been waiting for you to admit you love ska. Man, do they? I wonder where that <laughs> what that stems from. Like, what? I don't have. Do I have a public <laughs> vendetta against ska? I don't well, think that you know, I do. Now is your time to clear the air. I think that just. I think it's just because what it is is I'm a snob, and people <laughs> assume that like ska is target number one for s snobs. <laughs> But I don't I don't have any particular vendetta against ska. I think that like ska, like any genre that got popular, had a decent core uh, pioneer group. And then we got diminishing returns. Right. It happened with pop punk. It happened with hardcore. It happened with emo. It happened with emo to like the fucking nth degree. You know, like there were some really good, talented, unique um, pioneers. 
And then we got a couple of like, we got like many years of copycats. So that to me was always like my, my thoughts on ska. Like mm-hmm. I like, I like the, probably the tent poles of it. Like, I mean, beyond the, like, you know, madness and, and, and like the early 80s stuff. I mean, like just what got popular in the 90s. Like I fucking love Keys Be Nights. I love that album. I love Turn the Radio Off. I think that is a great album. I never was a Boss Tones fan. I I can listen to them, uh, but I never was like huge on the Boss Tones. Um, trying to think what else. I think my Scott palette was like rather limited, but I really enjoyed what I liked. What, what was your take on the Streetlight Manifesto um, re-recording of Keys Be Nights? I don't know too much about that other than that was like, that's like one of those victory records, like fucking dark spots. And there are many of them, but like, I think, I think like years ago, maybe I tried to interview that guy about it. And I feel like he like legally could not even talk about it. Do you, but what do you think? Do you think, what do you think of that version compared to the catch 22 version? Oh, I don't really know the streetlight version very well. I think I've listened to it. It's fine. But like the catch 22 version is so deeply ingrained in me. That's like, that's the version that I want (laughs) to, that I want to listen to, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have hard, uh, hard like opinions. I will say that like one, I feel like during during COVID, I I got like really into as a lot of people did, just like watching more YouTube videos of like shows that you know you maybe have been to or whatever you can find on YouTube because you people just like missed live music. But I remember like watching a solo set from that guy. Uh, and first of all, I did not realize that he is what like Scandinavian. Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly, but yeah, I must look it up because how I didn't pick up that he has like this like very crazy accent, um, I don't know. Um, but I was like watching solo sets that he did. Like, what is his name? K Kato Toke, or whatever. Like, but it's like Toke. Yeah. Um. Oh, to- is it Thomas Kolinsky? Yeah, yeah. That would be Toke. Uh, yeah, he is from Czechoslovakia. Uh, and he has like a very like distinct accent, but I was like watching um, like just solo shows of his on YouTube. And I'm like, man, this, he, he's a really good songwriter. <laughs> like uh, it's just weird to hear it without like all the ska stuff, because I just feel like it could have easily have been like a, like an emo record or like a, like a grungy, like sunny day real estate t- type of record. Like it's just good songwriting. He just happened to add like a lot of like horn sounds to it. Yeah. One of the things I like about Sellout um, is the amount of like, like the minutia of like things happening around these bands and these scenes. So you might get like mm. two paragraphs on like some obscure band and that's all you, you get about them, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, it's cool. And like the one that like my favorite personal for me was um, in the Donna's chapter when you're sort of talking about the, that sort of garage rock scene that they came from in their early days. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the uh, Vulcaneers, who was a Star Trek themed oh, yeah, garage yeah, yeah. band. Yeah. Because that was Jerry Jerry Lundquist and Lars Nylander from Skank and Pickle. That was a side band that they did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They were both. And also um, Shannon Smith, who is Kurtwood Smith. That's the uh, father of uh, That 70s Show. 
I know who Kurtwood Smith is. I I ran into him at a coffee shop, the same coffee shop from Ooh. I think you should leave that I mentioned. Well, his, Sorry, well, his son. I got very his excited. son was in this band. <laughs> no fucking way, really. Yeah, and I was in a. I I had a band briefly with Shannon Smith as well. Uh, we were called. Um, God, what were we? The Sudsman. Yes, our gimmick was garage rock, but we wore uh, twelve pack beer cases on our heads why was everything a fucking gimmick back then i'm not like not ragging on you but like why was everything like a fucking like that was the garage rock scene i don't know what it was maybe it was because of the mummies i think the mummies sort of like made it i mean the mummies were cool yeah there was like that that donna's thing was funny because i i learned that there were like two like palo alto base like a a palo alto base like garage rock record label and all the bands were called like the apes and they <laughs> all wore like ape costumes and this band was called like yeah the Vulcaneers, and they all wore like they just like captain spock and i'm like <laughs> why was everything a, a gimmick like it's just so funny um but yeah i just think of that for people into that music they would just they would get those nuggets records and it was like they were cool because they were kind of shitty so they were sort of trying to create that sort of like cool but shittiness. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. I feel like that's so fucking popular. Yeah. Like that cool shittiness uh, now I feel like is like the fucking style among like 20 year olds, <laughs> you know? Yeah. For that sure. like indie sleaze shit that's coming back. Uh, indie sleaze. I see people post about that and I just my eyes glaze over. Me too. Why is that? Let's dissect that. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I have the same reaction as you do. I feel like we ha- we have the the distance from it at this point to see that like having shitty recordings and like having stuff suck like it just you when you revisit it years later you're like oh this, this is not great yeah but like if you actually just go ahead and make a decent sounding record that'll hold up over the test of time I, it's a lot better and twenty some things don't don't see that I saw some guy clearly younger than me uh tweet the other day i'm sorry he posted on x <laughs> x.com oh god actually i just weirdly found it very quickly and i'll read it to you because i feel like this is a very good conversation starter uh this person said anyone else wish they were an adult for 2000s brooklyn core like tim and eric lcd sound system mumblecore movies animal collective santa gold etc feels like a subjection of culture which was roundly mocked at the time but is still influential today first of all what one of those things have to do with like what the fuck like that was like a random assortment of five things <laughs> like you picked like a comedian and like a fucking movie and a like it's just so bizarre and then also too that subsection of culture was not roundly mocked at the time it was like very cool yeah it was like uh, animal collective mm-hmm. were like just hailed as geniuses and every single music blog blog you went to and especially like from our perspective who liked like alkaline trio you know, like animal, like this shit was like the cool shit. Like what we liked was like corning and for babies, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just weird now to see this person who's clearly like probably half our age, like really like romanticizing this fucking like indie sleaze time <laughs> that we live through. And we're just like, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I like I like a lot of the music and stuff, but I it just sort of the looking at it as cultural movements is harder for me because maybe because of my age. Um, 
and just some of the the trends that go along with it. Like I I really like that band Big Thief, but mm-hmm. when I see photos of them, not in recent one, the recent one they look look weird for some reason. But just where they just look like Okies or whatever. yeah, just like come on, yeah. <laughs> like, but I'm like okay, I guess like I guess if I was young, like, I would probably be I would probably think that's cool. I don't know. Maybe you guys like are on the same page as me, but like this kind of stuff doesn't bother me that much anymore because I. Like, I think when you're a kid and you don't know anything, like you don't, kids don't have, you don't develop a real personality until you're kind of far into your life, right? So I think like when you're a young person, you just look for things to glom onto as your personality. It's why when I was 17, my backpack was fucking covered in band patches and buttons, like literally just covering yourself and in other people's things. And then you get older and you're more comfortable with yourself and you don't need to do that. Like you have an actual personality. So I don't know, like now when I, when I see something like big thief, I can listen to their music and enjoy it. And that's it. I don't have to care about what they look like (laughs) or what wearing a big thief shirts looks like to the world. Like what it says to the world. I just like, it's not my fucking personality. The same thing with like, turnstile and i'm not gonna get into turnstile bashing but like kids are so fucking into turnstile and that's great like not taking any enjoyment away from that have fun but to me i'm like yeah i will listen to this record in the gym and that's it i don't need like any further like i don't need to like wear a turnstile shirt i don't need to go moshing but if you're just getting into hardcore i see why it's appealing i just don't need to make it my whole fucking personality at this point in my life you know all right yeah i i'm with you (laughs) that's my take that's my that's dan's take on new music (laughs) thank you for listening to in defense of ska to support the show and hear more please sign up for our patreon intro and outro music by slow gherkin from the ep lives download it on bandcamp Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Remember when you thought Dan Ozzy didn't like you? He likes me. Authors unite. <laughs> and how do we know we like you? Well, because we invited him behind the curtain, our little clubhouse over on Patreon. So you can hear more of our conversation about sellout and punk and ska and all the good stuff. It's only $5. Head on over there. Give it a listen. Aaron, who do we have next week? Next week, we have a guest so amazing. I can't even say their name. Oh, my goodness. It's going to blow your mind. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.